In Des Plaines, Illinois, near Chicago, a man who served time in prison for sex crimes was let out. Today, they found the bodies of at least three young boys buried under his house. At the time when I met him, I was about 16 years old. Uh, and of course, like a lot of 16-year-olds, I uh, wanted to get a job so I could afford to have my car. We lived in an apartment at the time, and he helped remodel the apartment. It's a little bit how he became familiar with me, because I was helping do the work when we were remodeling the apartment. So then he offered me a job. My first impressions were he was basically a likable guy, kind of jovial, liked to joke around. Um, you know, appeared very normal. His neighbors knew him as Johnny, the life of the party. He was a very good neighbor. We socialized with him. He didn't expect it from him. He was a nice guy. Even now, when you really learn about Gacy's crimes, they are so unspeakably shocking that they're really hard to wrap your mind around. The notion that this pudgy, normal-seeming, decent, regular, ordinary guy was living in this horror house, you know, that was just suffused with the stench of death, and that there were the rotting bodies of 27 young men in his crawl space, that he was living in this ordinary suburban community and bringing home and torturing young boys right in the midst of all his neighbors and then going off to work the next day. You know, again, it's you're, you're dealing with a kind of outer boundary of human behavior that is so hard, you know, for any rational person to even grasp. Working for PDM contractors was fairly normal. We did uh, remodeling projects. There was a lot of things like putting down tile floors and things like that. But PDM stood for painting, decorating, and maintenance. So we did a lot of light construction, fairly normal from a work environment. The one thing that was a little misleading is sometimes at you know, three o'clock in the afternoon, you know, John would say, hey, it's a nice day out, let's knock off early and have some fun or do something. And kind of like you didn't expect your boss to be the one that wanted to knock off early, but that was the case on occasion. He would jump in and work. Obviously he had two or three teenage boys other workers than myself and you know he we didn't know what we were doing so he would have to show us how to do the work and he would do the work and the somewhat scary thing is the type of guy he was he was very likable uh jovial wasn't very hard on you know the work that's the thing i think that fooled a lot of the uh, young men
we had a missing person, Rob Keast, a 15-year-old boy from Des Plaines, who was reported missing by his parents. And the juvenile officer that was given a report to follow up on, like we would do with all, uh, looked into it. And at that time, in the late 70s, there was a lot of stuff going on with uh, the hippie movement, all that kind of stuff. But he made a determination very quickly that this was not a normal, quote-unquote, runaway. He didn't have any girlfriend problems, was not involved in drugs or anything like that. He was just an all-American good kid. As the investigation went on, it was determined that there was a very good likelihood that John Wayne Gacy was a suspect in the case. He was a contractor and especially actually was uh, remodeling pharmacies. Our victim, Rob Peast, was an employee at this particular pharmacy in Des Plaines. And when John Gacy came in to check on his work, Rob Peast was interested in getting a job with him because he had heard that John Wayne Gacy had paid these young boys a fair amount of money. And he was hoping to get a little pay raise because he was saving up for a Jeep. So he had told an employee and actually his mother who was waiting for him outside because it was close to closing time that he was gonna go talk to a contractor about a job. And he then went out the back door where John Wayne Gacy was parked. He wasn't seen any time thereafter. Gacy is sort of a quintessential serial killer in the respect that, you know, he had this very, very respectable social persona. He became a successful businessman. He would organize various charity events. Again, very, very notoriously assume this role of Pogo the Clown and perform for hospitalized children. Clown as a figure of evil uh, has become kind of a pop culture commonplace, partly because of Stephen King's book It. I'm sure a lot of that was inspired by Gacy. What's interesting about Pogo the Clown when you see him is how <laughs> incredibly creepy he was. You know, people often commented on it. Professional clowns usually will paint their smiles with sort of gentle, circular things around their lips. You know, Gacy's smile looks like bat wings. There's just something horrifically sinister and monstrous about this figure of Pogo. Again, just an element that raises Gacy to the level of a kind of mythic American monster. Casey had a personality that was just unbelievable, very likable. Everyone that we talked to just loved John Wayne Gacy. His neighbors, his coworkers, all of his associates, they loved the guy. And we could see that. I mean, the way he was interacting with us was basically the same. And my partner and I would have to, on many occasions, remind one another, hey, listen, you know, this guy is dangerous. We gotta stay on guard. When we would go into places with Gacy, I mean, people just gravitated towards him. He was very popular, very well-liked, very confident, cocky, 
kept on bragging about all property and how much of a businessman he was and how well connected he was and some of which was true. He was very well connected in the political circles. mopping the floors, setting up the chairs, and things like that. And uh, he had been uh, previously talking to me about, he likes to test his employees, know what kind of people they are, because if he leaves you alone at a job site, he wants to know, you know how you'll behave and things like that. So um, he was questioning me about, you know, homosexuality and things like that. And I told him, you know, I have a girlfriend and all that. And at one point when I was uh, setting up those heavy folding chairs, the lights went out in the place we were working. And he started approaching me and kind of grabbing at my buttocks and stuff like that. And I literally picked up one of these heavy folding chairs and just kind of turned around and beat him with it. And he, you know, he splayed all over the floor. And uh, he, the one quote I remember he said to me, he goes, you never asked me to stop. I was a little bit on the smaller side when I was young and I learned reacting in a crazy way is sometimes a good defense and that's what I did. So I didn't give him a chance. I went right to level five and just whacked a, you know, an adult with a folding chair. So, and that pretty much ended that behavior. Yeah, it is a very bizarre thing. And in my mind, when this happened, I thought this was just one of his, his tests. And <clears throat> I mean, I wasn't trying to pass the test. I just reacted to it by hitting him with the chair. I had never really witnessed one of these things that he was calling a test, but he prefaced it all. He, he set the stage for these kind of things in your mind that you wouldn't think these incidents were abnormal and maybe in some ways for me at least that made me be a little calmer and I didn't react in a way that a panicky way that could have been very dangerous for myself. how far after the first incident, the second, but it was definitely months later. And it was in the, more in the summer. And my, you know, I was probably closer to 17 years old now. My parents had gone away 17 years old. I didn't want to go on vacation with my parents and I got the opportunity to stay home and have the apartment to myself. And uh, during the, uh, the work day, I had worn gym shoes, which was against what we were supposed to wear when we were working. But in any event, I got a nail that stuck through my gym shoe into my foot. 
So John took me and I got a tetanus shot and took me home. And he came over later that evening to, you know, check on if I was okay or that was the, the theory. But he also had some wine and he said he had been at a party. You know, I was 17, he let me have the wine and we were drinking and he was kind of joking around. It was probably 10, 10.30 at night. And uh, I was a high school wrestler. And he said, oh, you know, you're a big wrestler guy. And he started wrestling around with me. At one point he got my left arm and he got it behind me and I felt him put a handcuff on it. And that was pretty strange to me. So I kept flailing my right hand around so that he couldn't get my right arm. But eventually he did get a hold of my right arm, but I was struggling and I was relatively strong. He didn't get the handcuff on really well. He got it on, but it wasn't very, very tight. And he knocked me down to the floor with my hands behind me. And then he left the room for a few minutes and I realized that if I pulled really hard on my right hand, that I could pull my hand through the handcuff. I could get, I could get it out. I scraped up, you know, all the skin off my knuckles and everything else, but I got my hand out. And then probably the key thing that I did is I kept my hand behind my back underneath me. And he came in the room and he didn't know I had gotten out of the cuffs. And like I say, I was a wrestler. I hit him with a nice double leg takedown and I dropped him right to the floor. And I took the handcuff that I had gotten out of and I handcuffed him on one of his wrists. I had all my weight on his back. He was face down. One of the things I learned from wrestling, if I keep pressure on the back of his neck, he can't move. And I reached into his pocket got the key and I uncuffed my left wrist and I handcuffed him behind his back, laying face down. Then he goes, you're the only one that not only got out of the handcuffs, you got them on me. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought that this was some type of test that he had performed before. And I let him stay there handcuffed for a number of minutes, 10 or 15 minutes before I let him out of the handcuffs and he had previously agreed that when I let him up, he would leave and he did. Gacy actually drives Peast willingly to Gacy's house. While there, Gacy starts showing Peast some uh, some little tricks of the trade of being a clown. He shows him a couple of card tricks and a few other things which were kind of neat for Peast. And the last trick that he shows Peast is the handcuff trick. Gacy actually handcuffs himself and turns around and struggles with the handcuffs and then turns back and he holds the handcuffs up. And Peast is pretty amazed at that. And he said, well, that's, that's neat, how'd you do that? So Gacy says, well, here, you handcuff yourself and I'll show you how to do that. So Peast handcuffs himself and he struggles and he struggles and he struggles. And he looks at Gacy and he says, now what's the trick to this? And Gacy reaches in his pocket and pulls out a key to the handcuffs. And he says, the trick is you gotta have this key. 
and it was the beginning of the end for Rob Peace. What I was thinking when, when I was handcuffed or, and got out of the handcuffs is I wasn't fearful for my life. I had no idea of that. And I just kept my hand underneath me because I wanted to freak him out. You know, I think he was trying to freak me out and I wanted to turn that on him and freak him out. He expected that I was demobilized and then when I tackled him and took him down, uh, that was quite the surprise. And, felt pretty good about that so but I had I did not fear for my life and not fearing for my life and not panicking uh, is probably what saved my life so I'm sure if when I got out of the handcuffs if I tried to run for the door or do something you know he was 33 years old and very strong and I was 16 or 17 um, I'm sure he could have overpowered me if he knew he had to victims. Some were kids who worked from him, but most were uh, teenage runaways or, you know, young male hustlers who were out on the streets trying to make a living by prostituting themselves, bringing them back to his house and giving them drinks and sometimes showing them pornographic movies and, you know, sometimes having sex with them. But, you know, he would sort of trick them into handcuffing themselves or being handcuffed and then proceed to torture them in various ways, then kill them by performing what he called the rope trick, which was garroting them, you know, with a cord that was tied around their neck and then he would stick the handle of a hammer in back of it and twist it and slowly strangle them, you know, while he achieved orgasm. He would slowly turn the tourniquet, and he said he had it perfected so well that he knew exactly how the body would react to each half turn. He said, in fact, I had it so well perfected that I could place the stick behind the back and the back of the head, and I could be hands-free, and the victim wouldn't be able to get out of it. And he said, in fact, that's what happened that particular night, he got a phone call right in the middle of dealing with Peast and killing Peast, and he answered the phone, and in fact, it was a phone call saying that his uncle had died. So after his phone call, he went back to Peast, and Peast had passed out. He continued his method, and he uh, had sexual relations with Peast, and, and at that point, he killed Peast. <laughs> And the very first young man that he killed, he said he was gonna have sexual relationships with him, and the young man resisted, and uh, he grabbed a knife and he stabbed him to death. And he said, there, he was in the kitchen at the time, and he said there was blood 
everywhere in that kitchen. And he said, it took him about two hours to clean up the blood and remove the body. And like the last drop of blood that he wiped up, his wife came home. And he said, from that point on, I knew I couldn't make a mess like that. So I developed the rope trick. So that's how calculating Gacy was with that. I continued to work for PDM contractors for months after that with no incidents at all. I actually eventually quit because we had worked organizing a parade, so we had a disagreement over money, and I didn't get paid and I quit, and that's how the, my job ended. investigators portion of this case, they had been interviewing some of Gacy's associates and they're young kids, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. And at times, Gacy had ordered these young kids to go down into his crawl space of his home and dig trenches. And he had told them that there was a sewage issue and that he needed the trenches dug so he could alleviate that situation. But they said that it happened several times and that there was an odor down there that was just unbelievable. So now we're starting to believe, hey, is it possible? And I know it sounds crazy, but is it possible he could have buried someone in the crawl space? When they executed that search warrant, they went in the crawl space and the very first shovel that they dug, they found human remains. So they immediately called me, let me know that there was human remains in a crawl space, and at that time I arrested uh, John Gacy for murder. Police searched Gacy's home and found the decomposed remains of three bodies. Uh, the next time I heard his name after uh, I quit working for there was, I was working nights and I came home and my mother goes, John Gacy has been arrested for murder. And I thought the most likely reason that that happened is maybe got in a bar fight or something like that and had, you know, inadvertently killed someone. So I didn't think much of it. And since I worked nights, I heard that news and went to went to sleep and it wasn't until I woke up late you know that afternoon that it started to come out that you know what the, the the true events were one of John Gacy's neighbors said all of this is like a nightmare and it will be several years before this neighborhood recovers from that nightmare I saw all the news items at the time of with them bringing out body bags and things like that it was pretty creepy and it makes you kind of sick to your stomach.
Every day for a week, outsiders came here to see bodies brought out of Gacy's house. His neighbors will never forget that. You see bodies in your sleep, you see him in your sleep. It's just too much. Oh, it's just amazing. I mean, it's the case of a lifetime that really, in a way, no one wants to have, but in a way, they want to have it. He had buried 27 young kids in the crawl space. He buried one of the young kids outside in his backyard, and he didn't have any room left on his property, so he threw five remaining victims in the Des Plaines River. It came to the realization that I was potentially one of those victims when I started to um, see what happened and realized that the, the demographic for all of the victims were the age that I was when I worked for them. When the story broke, I was a little bit older. And thinking back then, I actually knew one of the victims fairly well, uh, John Bukovic, who we called Little John because John Gacy was Big John. It was very strange because John Bukovic and I would work together as a team quite a bit. And one thing that was very strange is John just didn't show up to work. John was good friends with one of the other workers, and John Gacy told me that the two of them just went off to Puerto Rico. And that's why, you know, they just moved there. They just wanted to live in a warm climate or whatever. And I thought that was a little bit strange, but you know, 17-year-old kid, you don't question the adult that much. The thing that was strange is John Bukovic had a, uh, a Dodge Charger, and I had a Plymouth Roadrunner, so we had similar cars, and we would talk a lot about our cars. And it was very strange that he would just up and leave his car. That was the thing that didn't sit right with me, but I still didn't put, you know, put two and two together. One of the things about John Gacy is that he was relatively smart about all this stuff. There were occasions with some of these boys where he was the one that went to the police and reported them missing. He would say, you know, this kid hasn't shown up for work in three or four days now. I want to report him missing, which is pretty significant, you know. <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of guts, I think, to, to be that brazen about, about that. When we first started out, he was extremely confident and cocky. And we brought him back to the station, and he was in an interview room. Uh, the first thing he told me, when we weren't really doing an interview, he just looked up at me and said, Mike, you know, I'm not gonna spend a day in jail for this. So I think he is defeated he was, he still had the, was aware and thought he was gonna get out of it. When we were interviewing him, we had no idea the magnitude of this. You know, I mean, three or four or five was a huge magnitude. And as we determined it was 33, it was just incomprehensible. But we had to maintain our composure. You know, we had to keep them talking. In some cases, we had to encourage them to talk. It was a challenge for us, uh, not looking like we were upset in any way. Because obviously none of us had gone through a confession like this before. It was shocking. I've been involved with other homicides, rapists and all that kind of stuff. 
sometimes there's a point where they're trying to almost apologize for their actions, somewhat try to get some sympathy from you as an investigator on why they did it or what they did. And through the whole time, Gacy never did that. He blamed the kids. They were looking for money. All they wanted was money. It was their fault. That's, he didn't feel any remorse at all. Um, they killed themselves, basically was his attitude towards it. The district attorney contacted me pretty quickly and kind of filled me in and, and got any facts that I had known. And, and they wanted to know, of course, about trips he had taken that I knew of and, and things like that, his, his whereabouts so that they knew where to look. One of the things that I did notice is one day I came in for work and he had a, a big garage that had like a back room where there, you know, we kept a lot of the tools. And in that back room in the garage, the floor, the concrete had been patched. I questioned him at the time. I'm like, wow, why did you patch the, the floor back here? And he said, oh, it was all cracked and it needed to be patched. And I thought back and I'm like, boy, that, that floor wasn't that bad that it needed to be, you know, do all the work you'd need to do to patch that floor like that. And sure enough, that's where John Bukovich was. It was in the garage floor in that back room. For kids, monsters are real. As you become an adult, you know, you realize, well, there are no real werewolves, there are no real vampires, or, you know, when you go to sleep at night, there isn't gonna be some weird thing in your closet. You know, but then something like this happens and, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, this monster is real. You know, there is this ogre who's living there. It's transfixing, it's riveting. You know, it's fascinating in the most horrifying way. Prosecutor Terry Sullivan called Gacy's insanity defense hogwash. Sullivan told the jury that justice implores them to find Gacy guilty of murder in the worst degree. It's the only time I think I saw him after the story broke was in court. I was one of the witnesses for the prosecution and uh, I saw him in court and he was off to my left at the table where the defense attorneys are. And he just stared straight forward. I mean, on occasion he turned his head and, and kind of looked my way. I might have caught his eye on occasion in the courtroom, but um, I was pretty nervous to be on a, a witness on a trial of that significance at, even at, at that age in my early 20s. John Wayne Gacy was found guilty today in Chicago of the murder of 33 young men and boys. And many like Ken Peace, whose brother was killed, want revenge. There's only one solution now. What is that? I want him to see him go to the chair. And Eugenia Gotzik, mother of another victim, tearfully agreed. I hope he does get the electric chair. 
last-ditch effort. You know, everything else failed. He thought he could get away with insanity plea, and that didn't work. So it was last-ditch effort to say that he wasn't involved or that others participated. But it was very clear during his initial confession that he was the one who completed these crimes and completed them by himself. Very clear to us. You know, Gacy is one of these killers that I have no hesitation in pronouncing evil, using other human beings, inflicting pain and suffering and torture on another helpless human being out of your own perverse sexual needs. Suffering and torture and death to me is, is the essence of evil. Gacy is just living in this world of, of death and, and, and decay and decomposition and rot and fetter. I mean, that's, that's his whole world. You know, everything around him reeks of monstrosity. Karen Contiai was one of John Gacy's last lawyers in the aspect of the death penalty. When John Gacy was caught, I was in high school. So he had been in prison for a long period of time, and I was always very interested in serial killers. I was interested in the murder uh, concept. I was interested in people who committed these horrific crimes from a psychological standpoint. I had never represented anybody like that, but I was interested. So I knew a lot about John Gacy. I knew a lot about his victims and uh, the crimes that he committed over the years and followed very closely his prosecution and his appeals. When I first met Gacy, what was surprising was he looked and acted just like anybody else, like your favorite uncle, like your next door neighbor. And if you think about it, that's probably why he got away with killing so many boys and men, because he didn't look evil. He didn't act strangely. He was very engaging. He was very warm. He was very funny and he had a good way about him. And obviously he had been a successful businessman in the past, people liked him, he was involved in politics, and so he had very decent social skills. So what was surprising was you could not reconcile what he did with the man you were talking to. He was a very funny man. It's hard to describe that because what he did was so horrific that you don't like to tell those stories because people get mad at you and say, how can you find him funny? He's a killer. But he was funny. He was, he, he had a sense of humor. And because it was such a dark sense of humor, he had a small audience. One of the things that I like to get the word out about is that this guy outwardly appeared normal and matter of fact friendly and everything else and look what happened that's why i think the important thing to communicate is that something like this could happen and it could be anyone i mean in our case it, it was a an acquaintance and a neighbor that we thought everything was just fine with and that's the part where i think people in general have to be be very careful 
You have to understand when you have a client who has committed these horrific acts, 33 murders, no court is going to want to let him out. No court is going to want to uh, change execution to life in prison because it's politically a disaster. Gacy had to be executed and no matter what we alleged, even if we had really, really good arguments, I don't think anyone would have listened because it was John Gacy. Unfortunately, you have to do everything you can when you're a lawyer. People ask, like, why did you file those things? Well, we had to. That is your job. Our long-term goal was to have this be a life imprisonment. Our short-term goal was to get a delay of the May 10th, 1994 execution date, and we didn't either. It was a circus. We were in a room at some point and we saw a television screen and we saw thousands of people lined up at least a mile down the street at the prison with signs, kill the clown, kill Gacy, with our names on it, kill Karen Conti. Um, people beating drums, people dancing, people with clown makeup on. It was a circus. These are people, largely, who weren't even teenagers when Gacy was doing his crime. So these are people who came out to celebrate something that, in my view, if you're going to execute someone, if this government is going to take somebody's life methodically, it should be an awesome event. I mean awesome as in we should all be very calm about it, we should be sad about it, we should be um, respectful about it, and there was nothing like that going on outside the prison. It was, it was, it was a celebration. John Wayne Casey, it's time for you to die. I felt guilty at times because I didn't hate John Casey. I wanted him executed. I think uh, no doubts about that at all, but I felt kind of guilty that I should hate this guy. John Casey deserved the death penalty. He was vicious, he was evil. He was not insane in any way. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he killed these people for self-preservation because he was so well-liked politically and business-wise, he couldn't have his public out that he was a homosexual and taking advantage of these kids. So he knew what he was doing. From after that first kid and he didn't get the heat that he thought he was gonna get, you know, just continued on and on and on for six years before he was stopped. The serial killer who took the lives of at least 33 young men and boys was put to death by lethal injection in Joliet, Illinois, early this morning. I do feel very lucky to be alive. I don't know what to attribute that to, you know, maybe I, you know, luck definitely um, the biggest component, you know, a little bit of help from above. And basically, my own ignorance of the fact that I was truly in danger and the fact that I didn't panic and just wanted to win the game, if it was a game, uh, is probably what, what helped. I also would have been one of the earlier victims 
So I'm sure his techniques became more honed after he was divorced and lived alone and had more freedom to act differently. Gacy was one of these serial killers who denied to the moment that they were injecting him with lethal fluids in the death chamber that he was guilty. You know, you look at this guy and you can't believe he, you know, he seems totally plausible when he denies that he was guilty. You know, these people seem normal to the point of being incredibly boring and mundane. The notion that there can be this monster lurking behind that mask of sanity, as one psychologist famously called it, capable of these atrocities, you know, capable of even fantasizing about them, let alone committing them, you know, it's just, it's impossible to process. This is not what I want to be remembered for as a person. Um, and I've, it hasn't overly impacted my life. I don't want something that is as perverse and negative and, and grotesque as this to, to have a big impact on me or my life or my family. Gacy was the epitome of evil. And he was the epitome of being a great guy which made him, gave him the ability to be the most evil guy in the world. Was John an evil man? Absolutely. Anybody that kills 30-some people is as is, is evil as they possibly come, and totally innocent people. And of course, the reason he had to actually murder them is because of the rest of his business and standing in the community and everything else, he couldn't let his perversions, you know, become public. So the, the way he hid, you know, his sexual perversions was by having to kill the victims. And apparently he got away with that for a long time. Mm -hmm. 